0: As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills.
1: The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. You know success when you see it, or you think you do, the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money
3: Joe Biden and Senator Kamala Harris get ready for their big debut joint appearance. How will they be received? Plus, Speaker Pelosi has a lot to say about Secretary Mnuchin and says that the talks are in limbo. Can there ever be a breakthrough? And all of that, plus the latest ongoing situation on the 2020 campaign trail and geopolitical tensions around the world. My name is Kevin Cirilli. I am the chief Washington correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. And as we begin, uh, again, we are awaiting that first joint appearance, the first joint appearance between presumptive Democratic presidential nominee Joe Biden, and, of course, Senator Kamala Harris. And we're going to continue to now unpack that pick throughout the next uh, 90 minutes on this program, and we're going to bring you complete analysis on all fronts. And also coming up on the program, we're also going to hear from Robert Shapiro, because he's got he's an economic advisor to Democratic presidential candidates, including Bill Clinton and Barack Obama. And he has... Um, a really fascinating look into precisely what a vice presidential pick can mean and what it can signal for the economy in an administration. Wall Street, mind you, breathed a sigh of relief because they were worried that Biden was going to pick Senator Elizabeth Warren or someone else from that wing of the Democratic Party. And just to catch us up to speed on the market reaction, um, the U.S. stocks briefly surpassed the all-time closing high reached before the coronavirus pandemic, propelled by surging technology shares, and the dollar weakened and treasury yields rose to five-week highs. The S&P 500, mind you, climbed 1.4%, and it momentarily topped the level reached on February 19th, and it capped the it capped more than 50% rally since the market lows in March. I mean, it was a record intraday high that was set the same day. So, I mean, it was a, it was a a fascinating day on the markets. You've got Washington still at an impasse on the stalemate, uh, and you've got Wall Street and traders breathing a sigh of relief in terms of the pick from from. Uh, Joe Biden. So that's the stage that's set, as I welcome a friend of the program, Robert Shapiro, who is chairman of SANACon, and the former senior economic advisor, as I mentioned, to Democratic presidential candidates like Bill Clinton and Barack Obama. I mean, I want to get to your piece in Washington Monthly, Robert, but first, I want your economic reaction in terms (laughs) of the policy. Enough of the politics, right? What does it mean for policy, a Senator Harris, a vice president?
2: Well, uh, I think for policy, it means that Joe Biden is committed to a progressive economic program. Uh, And the question is, um, how deep will the hole be that the Trump administration is digging in the economy um, by the time Joe Biden takes office if he wins the election?
3: You know, I, I hear you on that point. However, I think—and and my colleagues, Max Abelson, Amanda Gordon, and Katya Kazakina, have a, a great story on the Bloomberg Terminal um, in which uh, they the headline reads, Wall Street Democrats rejoice at Biden's pick of moderate Harris. Uh, <laughs> I hear you yes. laughing. Go ahead. Yes.
2: Well, the fact is, she is a moderate uh, in as compared to— um, Elizabeth Warren and uh, Bernie Sanders, Um, she's also a progressive, um, as Joe Biden is. The fact of the matter is Biden's program so far, uh, as announced, will be the most progressive program we've seen, um, uh, both on climate um, and on equality. Uh, on supporting um, families through this terrible economic collapse uh that's frankly the result yes it's the result of the pandemic but he, but just as much it's the result of the administration's mismanagement of the pandemic
3: and I want to get to your piece in Washington monthly, but just uh, one of the one of the things that has emerged in in our world for our audiences uh Information when she was attorney general. I mean, remember, it was during the housing crisis, right? I mean, this is back in 2008, you know, which we all thought was going to be the worst financial collapse of our lifetime. Little did we know we were going to get whacked with COVID 19. But back then, I mean, in that landscape, when you look at it through the lens of the housing crisis, when she went after JP Morgan, and I was dusting up on my history of this just within the last day or so, when she went after JP Morgan. She didn't do it by saying, hey, you got to have more capital requirements, we need more stress testing, or we need to have the (laughs) CFPB. She did it through legal enforcement. So I hear you in in, in terms of you labeling her a progressive. And and when I talked to Republicans today, yes, on the issue of rejoining the Iran nuclear disarmament deal, which she wants to do, on the issue with regards to uh, uh, energy policy, uh, very progressive. But on the issue of financial regulation for the Bloomberg audience, She's much more centrist. I mean, because she did it through legal enforcement with J.P. Morgan and not through uh, the Senator Elizabeth Warren policy playbook. Am I wrong or am I right?
2: No, I think you're right. Um, however, you know, she's also very strong. When um, the banks were trying to cut a deal with all the states over the their— Um, mismanagement and fraud in mortgage lending, and they offered, I think, uh, $6 billion was going to be California's take, and it was going to be settled, but all the states were going to settle it at once. And she alone said, no, we won't accept it. Uh, That's too small. Uh, That doesn't begin to make up for Um, the costs of those practices on people, and they went, they were forced to go back into negotiation, and she got $18 billion. All the other attorney generals followed her lead when she said no. So this is a very strong uh, and focused uh, uh, politician who looks to the results rather than what you have to do, rather than simply changing the law in the hopes that in the future it won't happen. Uh, So I think you're right.
3: Robert, Robert Shapiro is on the line. He's advised Bill Clinton and Barack Obama uh, and, of course, is the CEO of Sonicon here in Washington, D.C. Your new piece in Washington Monthly, Trump and the Republicans are risking an all-out depression. Robert, I think we're already in a depression, but go ahead. <laughs> but I read this piece, and your your argument is that the policies here are going to make it worse. Why?
2: Well, think think about what happened in the second quarter. In the second quarter, GDP declined almost 10 percent, a 32 percent annual rate, It's the biggest drop on record for a single quarter. That happened with $2 trillion in support um, provided by Congress. Uh, and the economy had collapsed because states were closing down. Well, We we are, with respect to COVID, back where we were in March. COVID is spiking again across much of the country. It's already leading to some renewed shutdowns. Um, So the economy in the third quarter, um, the weakness is going to resemble something like the second quarter. But in addition, this time, they're not going to provide the money
3: it's really okay. remarkable especially it is, as
2: it's 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 Herbert Hoover all over again um you know the uh, he was another republican president with a gop controlled congress who rejected calls for wide-ranging government assistance during an economic crisis
3: and, and and we all know i mean remember hoovervilles and i remember i mean i remember back in uh, the middle school play Annie that's song Hooverville uh, listen Robert Shapiro I could talk to you forever uh, thank you so much for, for your insights and, and diving into the weeds because I I really want to make sure that we're doing that here diving into the policy of all of these different ideas and I, I we always have you on when you have a new piece and I know you'll be on in the weeks ahead that's Robert Shapiro everybody coming up next we check in with more policy and politics I'm Kevin Cerulli Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio you're listening to Bloomberg 991.
4: This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2.
3: I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. U.S. cases rise 1.1%. Governor Phil Murphy Murphy dropped a requirement up in Jersey that Jersey public schools conduct in-person teaching only. Meanwhile, two senior Federal Reserve officials lamented the U.S. failure to control the coronavirus pandemic compared with other nations. And that's the latest on the on the COVID-19 front. But we're still going to talk politics before we head into the next hour and and dive more into the uh, dive more into the policy of the stalemate. It's still a stalemate up on up on Capitol Hill. I'm I'm thrilled to welcome back to the program uh, someone who knows a thing or two about whether or not Senator Kamala Harris is a progressive or not, because of his insights in the new book, T.O. Bernie, the inside story of how Bernie Sanders brought Latinos into the political revolution. He's a former senior advisor to Bernie Sanders for the president in 2016 and... In 2020. His name is Chuck Rocha. Chuck and I go way back. We've been talking to each other for years now. And Chuck, I I, I skimmed the new book. I actually do read these books. Okay. And I think it's fascinating uh, because especially now at a time in which the Latino vote is so incredibly important in the upcoming election, you really make the case for why or how rather progressives can um, can do that. Uh, But I got to ask you about the the vice presidential pick. Uh, We just had, you know, some reporting that suggests that centrist Democrats are thrilled with this. Should progressive Democrats be okay with with Joe Biden picking Senator Harris?
5: Yeah, I think and I write this in an op ed that I just finished this afternoon that, you know, the the greatest thing for the Biden-Harris ticket is they're running against Donald Trump. I think this would be a different story four years from now. I was also telling another reporter this morning, you know, the easiest way to fix whether somebody is progressive enough is to get them elected and see what kind of government they put around them. You talk about this every day on your show that Biden is just one person and uh, Senator Harris is just one person. The way they build out their government, their cabinet, you can see what Donald Trump has done, whether you truly agree or disagree, is where the real power lies and then electing a Senate and a Congress you can work with. So is she as progressive, maybe around certain issues she is or not, all depending on who you talk to. But I think it was a really safe choice for him. There's two things that he underperforms in every day. He underperforms in his Latino performance compared to Hillary in 16 and Obama in 12. And he must get African-American turnout up to closer to the 08 Obama number than the dismal performance that Hillary had in 16 are going to be two key factors in him winning this election.
3: All right. So how does he do that? And, and I don't want to, you know, and the, the thing that, that Chuck knows is that I'm a policy nerd. So, so how, do, how does he recalibrate? on the issues or redirect the compass, so to speak, because it seems like, and you know this, I mean, you're as, uh, you know, as blue collar as they come and and you were with uh, Bernie Sanders. So how do you adopt that message and that messaging? Well,
5: part of this is around just going out and having this conversation. So a lot of people say, and the policy walks, and me and you put back and forth on this, like I'm the political guy. The policy only matters so far. The real strategy in a campaign is how do you get what you can do, to make someone's life better in three sentences in front of them where they are consuming information. And a person under 40 is consuming information much, um, much different than my mother, who's in her late 60s, who watches networks news every night. So the first thing is, and you saw it this week with Biden dropping like millions of dollars in television advertisement because he needs to get out there and explain to voters what is he going to do that's better than what Donald Trump has been doing. And so that's the first case. The argument that I make in this book is you have to expand your targeting, which is what Donald Trump did that was brilliant. He went way broad in 16 because that was his only pathway to victory. So he talked to lots of voters who weren't prime voters or everyday voters. He went to a lot of folks who hadn't voted in a long time or who may have been registered or not. And it wasn't because Donald Trump had this long foray of what policy positions he was going to get to rebound America. He put a slogan on a red hat and said, this is what I'm going to do, which was brilliant because that's really all people have the time to take in right now. So it's a popularity contest of what are you going to do for me right now?
3: You know, I want to as we await Joe Biden, who's set to appear in Wilmington, Delaware, with Senator Harris, any moment. Uh, you know, but I want to talk to you about something, uh, and this really gets to I think the heart of the working class Americans uh, and and folks in this country, uh, which is on people want to go back to work. It doesn't matter what party they're in; they want to go back to work. They want to be able to provide for their families, and they want to be able to do so safely and they want to be able to have good paying jobs. So for, you're you've literally wrote the book called T.O. Bernie. I, the the Republicans that I talk with and you know this, they attack your policies and they say that people right now are just that the, that the that the left just wants to give handouts to everyone and keep them out to, uh, of of jobs. I mean, and that's where we're at an impasse. And you and you your side points at them and you say, "Well, you don't care about the minority communities and and the underserved communities. But I don't want to even have that conversation right now. I wanna have from a policy standpoint, specifically what policies you think Biden Harris administration should adopt to provide long, safe, secure jobs for the Hispanic community and other underserved communities in our country.
5: I think it's recognized. I've been doing a lot of focus groups on this and it's to your point. Like The Latino community and focus groups that I've been doing, when I've asked them about this policy position piece, they all really, really have a dislike for Donald Trump. But in big numbers, they can't tell me what exactly Joe Biden is going to do to make it better. But they do know they don't like the racist attacks that they personally see coming from this administration. So when I say, well, talk to me more about the issue set. Now, this was pre-corona. Now, pre-corona, it was about worrying about health care for their family. If they lose their job, they lose their health care. Well, guess what? corona happened and now they've lost that job and they've lost that health care they want to know exactly what biden is going to do and what you're what you're getting at here i'm not going to be able to answer because i'm not in his campaign but i can tell you what they're telling me which is they want to know how you rebuild this economy and get them back to work right sure they want the money to pay their bills right now back to your earlier statement on the money but they really as you said hard democrats Mexicans mainly in the Southwest, are like we want to go back to work. Right. Like there's a prideful thing in working. And, how, and, and the, the contrast I've been using is how, did, how do we come back from what we did with the auto industry and with under industries right after Obama had came into office when we had that calamity on Wall Street and we did rebuild our economy? And then Donald Trump added to that. I give full respect to that as well. But you have to be able to get people back to work. But the key here is in a safe way. I think the people in America from my focus group have lost trust from what they hear because they hear so many mixed messages coming out of the White House and the Republicans who are saying they want to go back to work. But how do you do that safely?
3: And and I think it's it's fascinating. And, folks, if you're just joining us, Chuck Roach is on the line, and he's a senior advisor to uh, to. to to Bernie Sanders. He's very in with the Bernie Sanders wing of the Democratic Party. He's advised him for years. His new book is called T.O. Bernie, and it takes a look at how progressives can make the case for Hispanics. And I find this really interesting because, you know, I mean, there's so, we in the media do a terrible job every cycle of talking about various voting groups and and, as if they're one block. You know, the black vote, the evangelical vote, (laughs) the Hispanic vote, and it's it's more complex, the gay vote, it's more complex than that. It's so much more complex than that. And And, 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 and so I, I think what you do a really good job is is tapping into that and understanding. You said one thing, and we only have a minute left, so I unfortunately have to ask this very quickly. Um, but you said they they know they don't like Trump, and your focus groups, but they don't know what Joe Biden says. With that's the same exact thing that I heard four years ago when people were saying that about Hillary Clinton. They didn't is know great, what she was going to do. Yep,
5: and the the great point for Joe Biden right now and Kamala Harris is they have. 80 days to fix that, right? And I think that's why you saw this massive media spend that he dropped yesterday. I saw almost a million dollars of that go into Spanish. That catches him up now with Donald Trump, who's been trouncing him in Spanish, because now he has to create that alternative narrative on what I'm going to do. The good news for Joe Biden is he has 80 days now to fix it, where Hillary kind of walked past it.
3: All right, Chuck, if you're in D.C., hit me up. All right, we got a lot to catch up on. Chuck Rocha, the new book, T.O. Bernie. Thanks for checking in with me, Chuck. I appreciate it. All right, be well. All right, thank you. Coming up next, more policy, politics, and personality. I'm Kevin Cerulli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio. Joe Biden just took the stage with Senator Kamala Harris in Wilmington, Delaware. I'll tell you what they're talking about. This is Bloomberg 99.1. My name is Kevin Cirilli. I'm the chief Washington correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. Right now in Wilmington, Delaware, presumptive Democratic presidential nominee Joe Biden is speaking alongside Senator Kamala Harris. He is touting his presidential campaign and he has said that senator harris is ready to be vice president on day one we are going to dip into senator harris's remarks once she takes the podium uh joe biden speaking from a teleprompter right now in uh wilmington delaware and we will carry some of senator harris's remarks her first public remarks mind you since she has been tapped to be the running mate to uh Joe Biden um, and in terms of really where this story has gone uh, over the over the last over the last day since this has been announced it's been applauded by centrist Democrats as a safe pick uh, it has been applauded by progressives as a historic pick it's been panned by Republicans as a radical pick so I guess really, it's kind of what you would expect, to be honest. And in terms of the market reaction, uh, the markets did the markets today. I mean, it, it had a it didn't really have much to do with regards to the pick as a whole. I mean, they were looking at other things. But the S and P five hundred climbed one point four percent momentarily, topping the level that it reached on February nineteenth. And U.S. stocks briefly surpassed the all time high, the all time closing high reached before the coronavirus pandemic. But that was propelled by surging technology. Shares, um, and it really is remarkable because and we're going to dive into this over the course of the next hour. When you look at the stalemate still happening on Capitol Hill, especially with Speaker Pelosi criticizing Secretary Mnuchin um, uh, with regards to the impasse. So with that, that that's the scene. That's the. That's the stage that we have set as I welcome in my other, uh, my two guests, my two panelists uh, with me. Doug High, he is a senior vice president of media at Craft Media and Digital. He is the former deputy chief of staff to former House Majority Leader Eric Cantor. And Laura Fink, she is a Democratic strategist and founder and CEO of Rebel Communications in San Diego. Did I say that right?
0: Is it rebel or rebel? It's rebel, like the verb. (laughs)
3: I'm the worst. What did I say? (laughs)
0: I think you said rebel, and a lot of people do that Rebell. because uh, I understand.
3: Yeah, but Kevin Cerulli needs to do his homework on pronunciation, especially when he has Laura Fink on the line. So rebel, folks. I have a, 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 you know, you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. All right, Laura, what do you think? I just kind of set the scene for us, but I, I, I'm. A, do you like the pick? Do you not like the pick? You're you're out in San Diego. You know a thing or two about California politics.
0: I do. And in fact, I've had the privilege of I worked for uh, our own Madam President, the the president pro tem of the Senate, Tony Atkins, when she used to be speaker of the Assembly. And this was at the time in statewide politics when Kamala was coming up. She was running for AG. She was running for the Senate. So I have seen, you know, our our home state gal uh, sort of grow as a candidate. And, And she's always been said for many years to have the sort of it factor, the dynamism and the charisma that defines political leaders on the rise. and So it doesn't surprise me that she would be the top pick for Joe Biden. I think she fits really well with the ticket. And, Kevin, I have to say, you laid it out really perfectly, because here's what's what's true. She is a centrist but has enough progressive street cred to fire up the progressive base. And Republicans have failed so far to pin the radical leftist label on Joe Biden. So far, the voters aren't buying it. So I think they're salivating at the opportunity to try to throw that onto Kamala Harris to see if it sticks. So I don't know that it will. I think, I think strategically she's, you know, she has definitely waded through the wilds of many political realms um, and her record, you know, has a little bit of something for everybody. So I, I don't know that that will be successful, but I know that is going to be the strategy moving forward.
3: Well, I'm such a nerd that last night, Doug High, I was rewatching the Tim Kaine, Mike Pence vice presidential debate, and that I, and is
0: I, a nerd. I know, <laughs> it's,
3: and it's bad to admit it, especially on air, because it really shows everybody how little of a life I actually have. Um, <laughs> but I, when I was watching it, and I was sitting there, and I, and I'm thinking to myself, okay, so. Um, Okay, Senator Harris is a much different debater, right? We saw her go after Joe Biden in the first uh, uh, Democratic presidential debate. We saw her uh, engage with Tulsi Gabbard in that one moment. But Mike Pence is a much different type of, Personality, um, in terms of politics, obviously they're worlds apart, um, and on policy as well. I mean, so it's it's going to be interesting, and, and as you watch sort of the Republican response in the last twenty four hours, in terms of how they have been attacking Senator Harris's record uh, as it relates to the Green New Deal, as it relates to um, uh, uh, her her support for the uh, HEROES Act and, and whatnot. Uh, presumptive Democratic presidential nominee Joe Biden is speaking in Wilmington, Delaware, uh, and we're going to dip into Senator Kamala Harris's running mate. This is the first time, the first time that they have uh, appeared together, appeared together. And Doug High is with us, as is Laura Fink. Doug, can you hear me? I can, yes. All right. So your Republican analysis in terms of the policy uh, response to uh, to Senator Harris as the pick.
4: Well, I think I think Senator Harris is, is probably the best pick that Biden could make for a lot for a lot of reasons. And, and I will say it's the one I've always thought all along it would be. I rarely get these things right. So I'm glad I finally did. Um, it's when you see Republicans attacking her. It's not about attacking Kamala Harris. It's clearly about trying to use Harris to attack Biden. I think the challenge for Republicans here is voters know who Joe Biden is and he doesn't have the negative ratings that, that Hillary Clinton did. Hillary Clinton was massively unpopular. Joe Biden just isn't. And uh, they like Joe Biden. And and so to say that Joe Biden is just some empty vessel that's going to be filled no. by the left, I think is a tough sell no for Republicans. It may be Let me interrupt here
3: because Senator Harris has just taken the podium and I want to I want to cut to her first remarks. Here she is, she is.
6: Primary in history the country received a resounding message that Joe was the person to lead us forward. And Joe, I'm so proud to stand with you. And I do so mindful of all the heroic and ambitious women before me, whose sacrifice, determination, and resilience makes my presence here today even possible. This is a moment of real consequence for America. Everything we care about our economy, our health, our children, the kind of country we live in, it's all on the line. We're reeling from the worst public health crisis in a century. The President's mismanagement of the pandemic has plunged us into the worst economic crisis since the Great Depression. And we're experiencing a moral reckoning with racism and systemic injustice that has brought a new coalition of conscience to the streets of our country demanding change. America is crying out for leadership. Yet we have a president who cares more about himself than the people who elected him. A president who is making every challenge we face even more difficult to solve. But here's the good news. We don't have to accept the failed government of Donald Trump and Mike Pence. In just 83 days, we have a chance to choose a better future for our country. So, Joe, Dr. Biden, thank you for the trust you've placed in me. Jill, I know you will be an incredible First Lady. And my husband, Doug, and I are so grateful, grateful to become a part of your extended family. And ever since I received Joe's call, I've been thinking, yes, about the first Biden that I really came to know, and that, of course, is Joe's beloved son, one of his beloved sons, Bo. In the midst of the Great Recession, Bo and I spoke on the phone practically every day, sometimes multiple times a day, working together to win back billions of dollars for homeowners from the big banks of the nation that were foreclosing on people's homes. And let me just tell you about Bo Biden. I learned quickly that Beau was the kind of guy who inspired people to be a better version of themselves. He really was the best of us. And when I would ask him, where did you get that? Where did this come from? He'd always talk about his dad. And I will tell you, the love that they shared was incredible to watch. It was the most beautiful display of the love between a father and a son. And Bo talked about how Joe would spend four hours every day riding the rails back and forth from Wilmington to Washington, so he could make breakfast for his kids in the morning and make it home in time to tuck them in bed each night. All of this so two little boys who had just lost their mom and their sister in a tragic accident, would know that the world was still turning. And that's how I came to know Joe. He's someone whose first response when things get tough is never to think about himself, but to care for everyone else. He's someone who never asks, why is this happening to me, and instead asks, What can I do to make life better for you? His empathy, his compassion, his sense of duty to care for others is why I am so proud to be on this ticket. And Joe and I, yes, we are cut from the same cloth. Family is everything to me, too. And I cannot wait for America to get to know my husband, Doug, and our amazing kids, Cole and Ella. Because whether I'm cheering in the bleachers at a swim meet, or setting up a college room dorm, or helping my goddaughter prepare for her school debate, or building Legos with my godson, or hugging my two baby nieces, or cooking dinner, Sunday dinner, my family means everything to me. And I've had a lot of titles over my career. And certainly, Vice President will be great. But Mamala will always be the one that means the most. And, you know, my mother and father, uh, they came from opposite sides of the world to arrive in America, one from India and the other from Jamaica, in search of a world-class education. But what brought them together was the civil rights movement of the 1960s. And that's how they met as students in the streets of Oakland marching and shouting for this thing called justice in a struggle that continues today. And I was part of it. My parents would bring me to protests strapped tightly in my stroller. And my mother, Shamala, raised my sister, Maya, and me to believe that it was up to us and every generation of Americans to keep on marching. She'd tell us, don't sit around and complain about things do something. So I did something. You I were my are listening
3: to Senator Kamala Harris, Democrat from California, making her first remarks, her first remarks, folks, since joining former vice president, now presumptive Democratic presidential nominee Joe Biden's ticket. My name is Kevin Cirilli. I'm the chief Washington correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. We have been covering this story for every angle. And joining us, joining me, uh, on the line to offer their insights and analysis are two of the best in the biz. You know, and I looked at the rundown, I thought, thank you to folks who know what they're talking about. Doug High, Senior Vice President of Media at Craft Media and Digital. He's the former Deputy Chief of Staff to Eric Cantor and Laura Fink, Democratic strategist and founder and CEO of Rebel. Communications in San Diego, Doug. I'm going to come back to you because I interrupted before when I when I cut into her. Go. I mean, you were listening to her. She was talking about the 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 really, you know, her personal biography. What did you hear from Senator Harris?
4: What we've heard her say before in the past, um, you know, telling her life story, which is obviously um, a unique one in uh, presidential politics. You know, this this is an historic pick and. You know, one of the things I've been heartened about, Kevin, is a lot of Republicans have tweeted out uh, not the, the bad things that we've seen from, from like, the campaign, but say, I've got my disagreements with Kamala Harris, but let's recognize that this is an historic moment and, w- and we should recognize that. Um, now, we'll have a campaign where we're going to have some serious scrappy fights. Um, unfortunately, it'll probably go in the gutter a little bit. Uh, but where typically, I don't think that, as you know, you mentioned, you were watching um, the Kane-Pence debate. Um, this one will be a sharper debate, no doubt. Nope. I, I don't think pres- vice presidential picks make much of a difference at the end of the day to voters, especially when Donald Trump is at the top of that ticket, um, one way or another. Uh, but but certainly, Pence versus Harris is going to be a fun one to watch.
3: I just yeah, and I think that this this vice presidential pick is going to make, based upon my reporting and the conversations that I've had earlier today, this is going to be a significant significant. Uh, jolt in this race. And Kellyanne Conway was speaking earlier today on Fox News, uh, and she was uh, saying that the re-election campaign anticipates there to be some type of bump in the polls uh, for the Biden campaign, but then ultimately that it would uh, dissipate. There's so much that we don't know in terms of how these virtual conventions are going to play. Even Laura, and just watching this and the images, and I know we're on radio, but having this on my Bloomberg television, uh, looking at the optics of this. I mean, she's speaking from behind a podium, reading from a teleprompter with uh, American flags. I, I see in the frame five American flags behind her and and with a Biden for president um, uh, signage on the podium. And but I'm wondering, there's no crowd. There's no crowd shots. There's no embrace. They they walked out to the podium wearing black masks. Uh, they're being socially distant from one another. So they're not able to embrace. They're not able to do that. And, I, and I'm not saying this, you know, to, to have people roll their eyes at me, but I'm saying it because it, it that the pageantry, pageantry, the pomp and circumstance, Laura, of these visuals is so incredibly important to the presidential narrative that we have in our democratic process in this country. So as we head into next week, when it's going to be Michelle Obama, John Kasich, and I want to ask Doug about that coming up, John Kasich, a Republican, then Bernie Sanders speaking on Monday night in prime time, I'm wondering if this is going to be the optics of a muted, more sober, somber type of
0: communication style, Laura. I think it has to be, Kevin, and you know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of the hardest gig in politics, and I don't care what party you're in, but giving the response to the State of the Union. Oh my, God, that is
3: brilliant. Yes. You you should see my producer in the video chat. She's like, yes, that's exactly what it is. Go ahead, I interrupted. (laughs) So smart right there.
0: Oh, it's just like, I, you know, I'm a communication specialist and that's my focus. And I just look like, talk about an empty room. Zoom is just exactly that. And so here we have all, like some of the top Democratic talent and we're throwing a curveball with Kasich, but these are people (laughs) that know how to own a room. But how do you own a studio? How do you own a room when no one's in it? I mean, (laughs) when no one's in it, bravo.
3: It's I like know. it's like, and we've all seen those those uh those articles that have come out, you know. Oh, get the get the Zoom lights or whatever the circle light. Remember all that, you know? How do you? How, <laughs> I've, I've been reading all these articles, like, oh, how do you? You know, How do you powder your face? For I'm like, everyone's a TV correspondent now because they have, they have to know how to have the lighting and how to do the backlit and all that. I mean, now they're going to be doing it on, on a massive virtual convention scale. Listen, Laura, I know I got to let you go, so I want to thank you for coming on. That was a really smart analysis. I'm going to steal that. Laura Fink, Democratic strategist and founder and CEO of Rebel Communications in San Diego. Doug's going to stick with me. We've got a lot more to talk about. Why is John Kasich speaking at a Democratic convention? What's the calculus there? Download the Bloomberg Sound On podcast on Apple iTunes at bloomberg.com or by downloading the Bloomberg business app. I'm Kevin Cerilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg TV and Radio. This is one of my favorite songs. You're listening to Bloomberg 991.
1: You know success when you see it. 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time.
3: Can you imagine that slice of time? Rock and roll was young, peoples stood alone. I'm Kevin Cerulli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. And that song right there has gotten me through the last month. It's called Slice by Five for Fighting. Uh, Such a good song. Go out and listen to it. Slice by Five for Fighting. Uh, We're following multiple fronts tonight, right? Uh, We just heard from Senator Kamala Harris. She made her socially distanced debut as the Democratic... On the Democratic ticket. The choice we make this November is going to determine the future of America for a long, long time, Biden said. Kamala knows how to govern. And uh, she went out to say she went on to say, quote, America is crying out for leadership. Yet we have a president who cares more about himself than the people who elected him. Uh, It was very socially distant. I mean, just the optics of it. It was in Wilmington, Delaware. They stood. They didn't embrace each other. There's no photographs of them embracing. There's no photographs of them standing next to each other. They were 9 feet apart. They were both accompanied by their spouses. The spouses stood next to them to their uh, husband and wife respectively. But Biden the, the but the couples were like 9 feet apart. So they didn't even walk in holding hands. It was it was socially distant. Contrast that of course with what you're seeing from others. But really remarkable. They have masks on um And it's going to be really, you know, interesting to see how this all plays out here with me for the hour now as we await for President Trump to address the nation from the podium of the White House, the Brady Briefing Room on the daily coronavirus task force briefing. And I'll cut into that. You can listen to that. Uh, But it's Doug high. Doug is a Republican insider. And Doug, did you have it on in your monitor or were you just listening to it?
4: Um, I had it on and then was listening to it, you know, as best I could. But when Um, you
3: see them socially distant and with the masks, I mean, from you know, I mean, you're in with all of the governors and whatnot. I mean, it, it, am I reading too much into that? I mean, I know voters get it that we're in a socially distant time, but it's, I don't know. It just, it feels, it feels like the energy of the swing voter is saying, okay, we want to be safe, but we also want to get our lives back a little. I don't know. Am I, am I, I don't know, I don't, I, I just, everybody wants to follow the guideline. I don't know, go ahead Doug, take it away from me. No, it's,
4: look, it's it's weird, right? And it's, Thank and you, it's that's the better whether, word. Whether, whether you're talking about, you know, a political announcement like this, or watching a baseball game where they have stand-ups of fans, and they're... That's bizarre. Yeah. And, you know, and, and look, we've heard Donald Trump say that he wants to go to events, which, of course, is an irresponsible thing to do, to have them, but of course he wants to go, go to do events. You know, politicians love crowds, they love people waving signs and banners and cheering and all of that this campaign will not have anything like that. Um, and what we've seen in the past, and I think where it's going to be most interesting, Kevin is, and it's something I've kind of been advocating unsuccessfully for years is especially in the debate that we have in the primaries, there's a big crowd. They interrupt constantly. They're cheering their people. They're booing the people they don't like. And it, I think it often gets in the way of the debate. Um, When it's Biden versus Trump or Harris versus Pence and there's only one or two moderators and there's no crowd, there really is no place to run or hide. This could make the debate um, a much different dynamic than what we've seen in the past. And uh, since basically I think Nixon-Kennedy, and that's going to make them very interesting to watch and could have real repercussions.
3: It, it really is, and especially in terms of how they're going to navigate just the optics of the room um, and, and whatnot. But, all right, we've talked enough about the VP pick and the policy. We've covered all that, and we're, we've talked about the coronavirus. If I, I do want to cover, I want to add something new to the to the show, because I feel like we've been so heavy in 2020, and it's important, and obviously on the coronavirus and the budget stalemate. Well, and, and let's talk about that before we talk football, because I do want to talk football with you. <laughs> Um, But they're at an impasse They're at this impasse The the talks have staled Have stalled (laughs) And they're still trillions of dollars apart Doug Speaker Pelosi rebuffed Mnuchin With relief talks in limbo I'm reading from the Bloomberg Terminal And this this is where we're at. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi said she rebuffed an overture from Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin to restart talks on a new round of U.S. pandemic relief because the White House hadn't budged from demands for a smaller from demands for a smaller stimulus. But there's three points that I that I'll make, and this is the, this is what emerges from my reporting. One is there, the left and the right they're at a they're worlds apart. I mean, and they're a worlds apart let's just take the price tag, right? I mean we we throw this around in the media and in the beltway press as if it's as if it's like who's going to pay for the tip on Venmo, but it's not, right? I mean it's a trillion dollars is what the republicans are saying. A trillion dollars is is in addition to the 2 trillion from last stimulus. We've lost sight of how much money a trillion dollars is, okay? Yeah. And then you've got and I'm not taking a position, I'm just saying it's a lot of money. And then you've got the democrats who are saying three trillion at least, or three and a half trillion? Two trillion dollars is the, and I had one source tell me this, Doug. Two trillion dollars is the size of Apple. Okay, I, I mean we're not talking about, I mean the size of Apple. Two trillion dollars. If you're looking for specifically like what to how to quantify this, so uh, based upon my reporting for Leader McConnell, who is one of the most political savvy minds, as is Speaker Pelosi, for him to say, I don't hear him saying, you know, I'm, I'm a hardliner here. I hear him. What I hear him saying is, this is literally the most money I can get to deliver enough votes from Republicans. That's what I'm interpreting from Speaker yeah, I, Pelosi. I think, yeah, go ahead.
4: I, I think that's right. and And that highlights, you know, the real gulf that we see between not just Republicans and Democrats, but to some extent between Republicans themselves. Look, Republicans are now, and you've reported on this, Kevin, they are now starting to look towards what is day one post-Trump Republican Party look like. And so all of a sudden, uh, some Republicans are starting to be more fiscally conservative than they have been for three and a half years. That's playing a very real role in here. And as you as you mentioned, we're not talking about real money here. We're talking about enormous sums of money the size of Apple. So it's a very broad um, a breach between the two. And I think it also allows Trump, you know, Trump doesn't have many political opportunities here, but in this one case, he does by um, by stepping in with executive orders and saying, you know what, if Congress can't get this done, and Congress is never really popular, I'm going to step in and do something. It's Trump's only real card that he can play here.
3: Well, and and it from the executive order perspective, I mean, that's really what, what he can do. In terms of uh, in terms of all of that, I just think it's it's what a sign of the times where, you know, a decade or two decades ago, if you would have said the the cries from the public would have been, you know, get in a room and figure this out. You just don't come back out, uh, Democrats and Republicans, until you have a deal. But now the incentive and in the political calculation is that they don't really feel the need to do that. Am I wrong? I mean, until the middle gets loud, uh, I'm not sure that common gr- I think common grounds become a dirty word.
4: Uh, Common ground's become a dirty word. Uh, It's been a dirty word for a long time in Washington. But as you know, Kevin, even as far as as this is as far apart as they are from each other, we know that in negotiations, two things. It truly is always darkest before the dawn, and that nothing is agreed to until everything is agreed to. Whether you're a Republican or a Democrat in in this situation, you know that the voters are going to be rip-fire angry if there can't be some solution to getting relief out there. Right? They're already angry enough that, that we've gotten into this position. If we can't find a way to help stabilize the economy in some way, there is going to be truly hell to pay for a lot of elected officials in either party.
3: Right, exactly. And, and I, I'm just, you know, I was talking to some sources earlier in this week. Uh, pharmacy, the big, the big pharma fight, you know, with PBMs. I mean that's gonna, I mean once but once the the headlines cross it that uh, you know, a a company finds a vaccine, I mean, then the fight's going to start in terms of the money and the allocation. And how that's I mean, this is not even the last fight. I, I this is not even halftime. Speaking We're, of half, it's, it's
4: not even halftime.
3: Because they got because then they want to. The, the, the expectation up on the street is that they're going to be more stimulus. And by the way, the expectation in the street is that it's going to be 1.5 trillion. So anything less than 1.5 trillion, which again is a lot of money, anything less than 1.5 trillion would be. The market's not going to like that, Doug. But enough. I said halftime, and that was the pivot. Christine Barata keeps telling me I have to get better at my pivots and how <laughs> I, how I like, go into how my segues. I don't even know. But, uh, but I said halftime. Football. Okay, so... <laughs> The Pac-12 and the Big Ten postponed the 2020 college football season on Tuesday, becoming the first Power Five conferences to step back from one of the biggest cash cows in college sports as the COVID-19 pandemic rages. Wow. Doug, college football. I'm a Nittany Lion fan. Wow.
4: Yeah, and look. I went to North Carolina. I do like the Nittany Lions. Brandon Short is one of the all-time greats from, from Penn State. Oh. You know, I, I think it's interesting because we really, you know, until recently, there have been when we talk about education, we've really talked about opening primary schools. What we haven't talked about are higher education and child care. Child care aware mm-hmm. of America says with no child care, there's no recovery. Well, what we also know, which is true, and what we also know is – College football generates a lot of money, and it's not just TV money um, because we're all at home watching it on TV. Um, it's enormous money for the colleges, for local businesses around, um, around those communities, but it is also an emotional thing um, for, for voters. And I think this is a real uh, tough place for Donald Trump to be in if in swing states like Michigan and in North Carolina, just to pick you know, two, um, if there's not college football – in, in those schools, I mean, a lot of people who would otherwise be Trump voters are going to be scratching their heads saying, why can't I watch my football on Saturdays? And going back to primary education, you know, that's also Friday night Lights. that's high school football as well. If we don't have that. And obviously, I want to see it come back and I want to see it come back.
3: And they don't have questions. Way. I mean, but they don't have quite. I mean, and, and listen, I mean, my my uncle owns a hoagie shop. He's owned it in Delco for for uh, for big. For many decades, forty plus years, right, and and this is the side of it that doesn't that people don't know. But because I'm at Bloomberg, and we can talk about the economy. When the Eagles are in the playoffs, that means my uncle's selling more hoagies. You understand mm-hmm. what I'm saying? So you, you know, I'm reading from the Center Daily Times, and uh, which is a central Pennsylvania paper, where uh, the local paper, the CDT, as its known. And the, the the headline from the C D T is it's devastating. State college area businesses leaders react to no Penn State football this season. The amount of revenue that you just alluded to that these small businesses, the restaurants, which have already been pummeled, pommel, the bar the bars, the, the, the hoagie shops, the pizza parlors, the all of it. I mean when you actually think the delivery people, the the Uber driver the, the you know, the, the drivers to, to the various games and whatnot, transportation workers, Hotel. you name it. Hotels. I mean everything. The, and these are the, the the hot, these are the industries that were hard, already hit the worst, but there's still unanswered questions, right? We don't know if there's going to be a winter or a spring schedule, but you tapped into something. So there's that element to this, right? There's there's the, the small business, the main street folks who are once again going to get whacked and punched in the gut as a result of this, But there, and the unknown, right? But there's this other element of higher education and this other unfortunate, inconvenient truth. And as someone who covered the Jerry Sandusky trial— uh, as a freelance reporter and having gone to Penn State and knowing the impact of Nittany Lion football on that community, it's an inconvenient truth, which is the relationship that Division One sports has, Doug High, Republican strategist, in terms of funding higher education as a whole. Because when a school loses out, as the Bloomberg Terminal reports, for the U.S. conferences to forego a sport that can generate more than $100 million a year, for elite programs, and pull up the stats. Oftentimes, the top paid official in a state is the head coach of a public university's football team. So when you look at the revenue that is tied to athletic programs, this is a major economic story.
4: It's a major economic story, and very directly affects what happens in November, because if there's a spring football season That means we're not playing football in October and November, Um, and and that will be emotional for voters. It will be economic for voters. And by the way, back to the economics of it, there's no guarantee uh, as as more of a basketball fan than I'm a football fan that I'm going to get to watch Duke Carolina play basketball um, um, in the winter. And so that further uh, affects small businesses, hotels, and by the way, big businesses as well because the the networks that fork over a lot of money to show these games. They're yep. not going to have that advertising resi- revenue. They may have to do some layoffs. This well, is going a- to be very broad.
3: I mean, you look. I mean, and everybody wants to know what's going to happen with the NFL. I mean, because you look at you know the top rated events, the top the top rated shows, the top rated viewing programs. Programs is the word. The top rated programs um, uh, on. For, for, according to Nielsen, has always traditionally been dominated by NFL, by Monday Night Football, by Sunday Night Football, and of course the Sunday games. Um, and so, it, it, it's just remarkable to see the economic of, the economics of this. And I get it if people aren't of sports fans or they don't you know follow sports or, or they're not you know uh, a sports junkie. I keep up the best I can, especially with my my beloved Eagles. But it it the economics of this and it impacts what you just mentioned. Another I started very grassroots, but Go broader. Go macro. Look at corporate media structures and the investments that they're tied to um, in terms of all of this. And it's it's going to be remarkable. I mean, here in Washington, D.C., Doug, I don't know if you've been over in Georgetown. I know you've got a great relationship with Georgetown and in Washington, D.C. I mean, just over the weekend, I was over there and you've got the students are all back, but they're not going to be. I was grabbing a a green smoothie. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I, by dog tag uh which i love dog tag um and but they they're all back but they can't go to class so it's 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 uh, I, I don't know it's it's gonna be a mess right
4: yeah no absolutely and, and let me echo your your um endorsement for dog tag bakery in georgetown the they are amazing and it's a real their story is, is an amazing one and a lot of students are back but if you look throughout the country the students are still not sure what they're going to be able to do. They haven't been given an all-clear sign, or they're getting, you know, mixed messages from, from their own from their own university. And in fact, I was talking to a friend of mine whose daughter is um, returning to Appalachian State. But some of it's going to be in person, some of it's going to be online. This is also an opportunity for where you know online teaching. You know, companies like Two U that specialize in, in higher education online learning, you know, can can step up and and, and play a big role here. Because there are a lot of question marks that parents have and students have, and you know, if you're a college student, you're a voting age as well, and so the impacts that this can have on the elections could be enormous as well.
3: Well, and, and, and the headline on the Bloomberg Terminal from uh, today: Washington's NFL team to play home games without fans this season. So, I what I still don't get, and what I, I really don't get, the have Big Ten I to you
4: as an Eagles fan because if you go to a Redskins not, Eagles does. Fans, there's more Eagles fans than Redskins.
3: Well, there is or there Washington is Washington football team. But I, but, but trust me, I know that, don't we? So I always feel bad on this program, trash talking the um the the Washington football. T- they don't have a name, so that's even weird. To anyway, but um, but uh, but but anyway, but I don't understand why the Big Ten just didn't decide not to to just not have fans. I I I truly don't. Understand that. Okay. Switching gears as we await just to reset here. I'm Kevin. This is a policy and politics show. We've done way too much time talking about football. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. I'm joined uh, for the hour. He's been so generous with his time. Um, uh, Doug High. Doug High, of course, is a Republican insider and has worked for everyone. He was the former deputy chief of staff for uh, uh, Eric Cantor. And uh, now is at Kraft, uh, which is a huge media advisory. Give me one thing that's on your radar. What is on your radar?
4: Well, what has popped up to me has been the talk um, about uh, Mark Esper and the talk that he may be replaced after the elections. And what is striking to me about that is remembering the reaction of a lot of Republicans uh, the day after Election Day in 2006, which was the day that Donald Rumsfeld was fired. Um, The candidate that I was working for at the time who lost in 2006 was angry and said this is the final insult. Uh, I remember a friend who worked at the House Appropriations Committee at the time um, who said that their chairman, Jim Walsh, who was one of the most mild-mannered people you've ever met in your life, being positively apoplectic about it, thinking that doing so after the elections instead of before the elections might have cost Republicans four or five seats, um, that this is being talked about right now. Um, maybe this isn't what might affect the election, but it, but it really signals uh, that a, a second Trump president, a second Trump administration, um, could be the same kind of revolving door of choppy water that we've seen uh, for the past three and a half years.
3: So, wh- explain, dig deeper into that. Why do you think that is? Truthfully,
4: I, look, Trump likes to stir things up, and. That has been a constant of him. You know, how many chiefs of staff has he had, comms directors, uh, press secretaries? Uh, you know, was Scucci, Scaramucci really a communications director? It was so quick, we don't really even know. Um, but, but clearly he's reacting to um, the, the, a constant for Trump. If you've said something that he disagrees with and you've said it publicly, you have a problem with Donald Trump. And Esper has tried to distance himself. Um, from the reaction to the protests that we saw um, at Lafayette Square, and that clearly is is going to be something that Donald Trump is not happy about. When you say that and you say that publicly, you've got a problem with the president.
3: It's 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 gonna th- that's remarkable, remarkable in terms of the dynamics of that and and where things are going to be to be headed. I'm focused on China, and um, again, folks, we we're awaiting President Trump's press conference. We it was supposed to begin at five thirty, but uh, we have not. We, we he still no sign, still no, still no two minute warning. Um, actually, we just got the two minute warning. So, but the one thing that's on my radar is uh, the U.S. and China trade deal. Larry Kudlow uh, was speaking earlier today uh, at a White House news conference, and he said that the the U.S. China Phase One trade deal is fine and substantially incre- and that China is substantially increasing purchases of American goods. It's interesting because they're scheduled to have a virtual um, chat with their China counterparts in the coming days. And one of the things, reportedly, that China wants to talk about is TikTok and WeChat and whether or not the financial implications of that and whether or not they're going to be able to do business with with the businesses that own TikTok and WeChat. Now, I've been told, based upon my reporting, that that wiggle room is deliberate. Because the U.S. wants to signal that, and if you look at Senator Kamala Harris's record, stick with me here, folks. She sponsored a bill in the Senate that would allow for the United States to go after individuals in China who steal U.S. foreign po- or intellectual property from China. For, so anyone in China who steals U.S. intellectual property, Senator Harris's bill would say that that you can go after uh, those individuals in China. So that's what's on my radar. Um, U.S.-China tensions and and the continuing escalation of that. And just to reset here, Larry Kudlow, speaking of whom, has just walked into the Brady Briefing Room, as has Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin, uh, which would signal that President Trump will likely have some things to say, some comments to say about the economy, about U.S.-China relations, when he steps up behind the mic in the Brady Briefing Room. It has been a very busy week in domestic politics with so much of the news flow coming out of Washington, D.C., and uh, and we're very grateful to have Doug High uh, here with us for the hour. And Doug, of course, is the uh, Senior Vice President of Media at Craft Media and Digital. He is the former Deputy Chief of Staff and former House Majority Leader to Eric Cantor. Um, remember, you can download the Bloomberg Sound On podcast on Apple iTunes at Bloomberg.com or by downloading the Bloomberg Business app. You can also find me on Radio.com iHeartRadio and
6: Spotify.